0: Chapter 14 of the book of Revelation, chapter 14, let's pray. Father God, again, we, we, we thank you for drawing us together this evening to study your word, to help us to understand and, and know uh, your plan, how much you love us, and how much you desire for us to spend uh, eternity with you. And so Lord, we just ask that you would teach us through this study, that uh, we would see exactly what you would have us learn, and that uh, we would, uh, well, we just want to invite you here, Father, that you would fill this place. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're in chapter 14, and we'll read through the, the entire chapter as is normal, and then we'll break it down into, into the pieces. Chapter 14, verse 1, And then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 140,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the the sea and springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Verse 9, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the son of man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he sat on the cloud, so he who sat on the cloud thrusts in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had the power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God and the wine press was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the wine press up to the horses' bridles for 1600 furlongs. Wow. So in this chapter we're going to read the conclusion of all that we read in chapters 12, 13 and 14. Remember that chapter 12 dealt with the important characters of the period, chapter 13 with the wicked rulers of the period, and then chapter 14 with the ultimate triumph of Christ. All of this material, it's not chronological, but it prepares the way for the climax, which begins in chapter 15. Remember the heptatic structure of the book of Revelation. Remember, heptatic means seven. And so there were six scrolls in chapter seven, and then there was a one-chapter break. And after that break, then the seventh scroll showed up. And then after the seven scrolls, we had six trumpets, and then we had a five-chapter break, and then the seventh trumpet. And then there will be six bowls, a very small break, and then the seventh bowl. So there's six with a break and then the seventh. Six with a break and the seventh. We are at the end of the second break. All right? So the second break, it consists of a series of pronouncements and visions, and it assures the readers of the ultimate triumph of Christ and then also the judgment of the wicked. Hallelujah. Finally. Right? So let's jump in says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 140,000. So we've seen these 144,000 before. We saw them in in Revelation chapter 7, and they were identified as a group of believers, Jewish believers, who ministered during the Great Tribulation. They're they're given a seal throughout the period, and and they're saved. And and notice there's 144,000, not 143,999, right? God didn't lose one. Each of them were protected. It says that they stand on Mount Zion with the Lamb. It shows that they emerged victorious through this great tribulation. And the beast of Revelation 13 didn't defeat one of them. Here they are, triumphant, they're worshiping, and they're standing firm with Jesus. Now, Revelation 14, this chapter, is going to answer two questions that was raised by chapter 13. Remember, we talked about the beast of Revelation 13. It was terrifying and awesome. And he can, it said that he can even make war against the saints and overcome them. It said that in 13.7. And so, you know, is it fair to ask, is the beast completely victorious over all God's people? But, you know, the presence of this 144,000 on Mount Zion with the lamb answers that question emphatically with a, with a no, right? So the second question has to do with the satanic direct dictator himself. It says, you know, what happens to the beast and his followers? Well, that's what we're going to read in the rest of chapter 14. That's what we're going to find out. Why are they gather, gathered on Mount Zion? Now, Zion is the ancient name for the hills that make up Jerusalem. And it's the place where the Messiah is going to gather his redeemed and reign over the earth. So that's why they're there in Zion. You can read that in Psalm 48, Isaiah twenty-four, twenty-three. There's There's a few other places. I kind of see the 144,000 kind of like, you know, the three guys that were in the fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3. And, you know, here they are, they're in there. I mean, where Daniel is, that's a whole other question. But those three, you know, they prove God's ability to preserve his people through all kinds of things. Continuing in verse 1, having his father's name written on their foreheads, now, remember in, in chapter 13, the followers of Satan and the beast may have a mark on their hand or on their forehead, but this mark is just a copy of the idea of the identifying mark that are on the foreheads of each of the 144,000. Um, that mark showed that they belong to the Father. So just like last chapter, we read that Satan's just a copycat. Right? He tried to make his gig just like what God has and what God designed. Verse 2, it says, And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. This is the voice of God. This is the same voice that we read about in Revelation 1.15 and 4.5. You know, I think that God spoke here to proclaim his approval of the 144,000 faithful servants. I said, you know, kind of like in the spirit of, of Matthew 25.21 when, you know, Jesus says, Well done, good and faithful servant. I think that's what God's telling the 144,000. He's saying it, you know, instead of, Faithful servant, he's saying, faithful servants, all 144,000. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. Now we remember the elders in 5-8, they had harps. We kind of called them guitars. We said stratocasters, fenders, all that, right? And so perhaps this is where the music is heard, and uh, it's to accompany the the worshipful singing of the 144,000 as they sing a new song that's only unique to them. In verse 3, we learn that they sang it as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. So here we are in, in, uh, in, in verse 1, the 144,000 have their feet, firmed, uh, f- feet firmly planted on Mount Zion, and Yet their praises, read that, their praises take them directly to the throne room of God. You know what? Every service before worship service, we meet in the back. That's our prayer. That's our prayer, that our worship would take us into the throne room of God. That's what we ask for. Charles Spurgeon, a very eloquent uh, pastor, minister in the 18th century, he says, Heaven is not the place to learn that song. It must be learned on the earth. You must learn here the notes of free grace and dying love. And when you have mastered their melody, you will be able to offer to the Lord the tribute of a grateful heart, even in heaven, and blend it with the harmonies eternal. Isn't that cool? He's got such a way with words. Verse four, he says, "These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins." Now, many take the virginity of the hundred and forty-four thousand as simply a symbol of, you know, their general purity, uh, as as it talks about in Second Corinthians eleven. But others see it um, really literally. And when you think about it, you know, these are going to be distressing times during the tribulations. And if you think about it, remember that Paul he recommended celibacy uh, in distressing times. He says that. Uh, um, in 1 in Corinthians 7:25, Jesus spoke of woes in Matthew 24:19. He says, "But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world, until this time, no nor ever shall be." So it's not really hard to see that God would specially call these 144,000 to a literal celibacy for the kingdom's sake during this uh, time of the great tribulation. Continu- continuing in, in verse 4, he says, uh, These are the ones who follow the Lamb whenever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. Verse 5, And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So, Verses 4 through 8 explain that these 144,000, they have a Jewish heritage, yet they're clearly believers of Jesus. Uh, Otherwise, you know, they're not going to be standing with the lamb, they're not going to follow the lamb wherever he goes, and they're not going to be found without fault before the throne of God. Um, Even the vast majority saved during during the tribulation will be saved in exactly the same manner as, as anyone today, and that's done by grace. Uh, through a personal faith in Jesus Christ unto salvation. You know, even though the va- rapture of the church ends God's dealings uh, with the church as such on earth, uh, it certainly doesn't change the way people come to salvation or become part of the larger family of God, which includes all the redeemed even after the church age. Revelation 7-9 it describes this innumerable group of uh, people who are going to be saved. During the tribulation, and these 144,000 are described as the first fruits. And um, really, these first fruits may be used you know, to preach the gospel to those who are going to be saved during, during the period. So we could call these the tribulation missionaries, these 144,000. Verse 6 Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. So this is the first angel of the chapter. And this angel preaches the gospel, but he also announces judgment. He says with a loud voice, The hour of his judgment is come. And because the judgment of God is so heaven on the earth in this great tribulation, it's no wonder why this crowd of people um, of, of, of just, I mean, millions uh, can be saved through the great tribulation that we read about in Revelation 7, uh, 9 through 14. That number just can't be numbered. Um, some today like to identify their ministry or technology with this angel flying in the midst of heaven. And there's a a, a television ministry they they named their satellite Angel One because they wanted to fulfill that, you know, the angel flying in the midst of heaven that's spreading the everlasting gospel. Um, I think it's a satellite, not an angel. So. The angel tells the whole world to fear God and to give glory to Him. They can do this and give glory to God and worship Him willingly in this life, or they can be compelled to give glory to Him later because it's certain that one day all will give glory to God. And we're familiar with Philippians 2, 9 through 11. It says, Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So everybody's going to bow. It's certain that one day all will give glory to God. Verse 8. And another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, is that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So here's the second angel that announces the fall of Babylon. Now prophetically Babylon, you know, sometimes refers to a literal city, sometimes it refers to a religious system, sometimes it refers to a political system. But in all in, in all examples it stems from the evil character of historic Babylon. We're going to read more about Babylon in Revelation chapter 17. So for now, just know that it it represents mankind in, in kind of an organized rebellion against God. When John writes, "Because he has made all nations, or because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication," he means that Babylon has led all nations into fornication. And the main idea is spiritual fornication—that the worship of other gods—that would be spiritual fornication—and they're the leaders in that. Wow, that's a title that you'd like to have, right? However, we're never surprised to see spiritual fornication accompanied by literal immorality. They seem to go hand in hand because when there are no limits, there are no limits. Verse 9, he says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. This third angel, he reminds us there's a connection between worshiping the beast and his image and receiving his mark on his forehead or on his hand. No one will casually or accidentally take the mark. This connection between the worshiping the beast and taking the mark—it'll be clear. It'll be obvious. It's not going to be, ooh, I don't know how that got here, right? So, although receiving the mark may seem innocent enough to those who dwell on the earth, because it, 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 it's not—it's not in their window. It's not in their in their attention. In their eyes, it's nothing more than a mere pledge of allegiance, kind of like a devotion to the Antichrist and his, and his government. But in the same way, in the first few centuries of Christianity, we kind of talked about this last week, is that when, um, when Christians were asked to take a, a, a pinch of incense and, and burn it to the image of Caesar um, and saying, Caesar is Lord, you know, most people regarded this just as an innocent act of like a civic duty. All right, I'll sign up for jury duty. But no, Christians took it as worship and they decided, no, 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 I'm I'm not doing that. And that got them in in lots of trouble for good reason. And so here we read that um, those who worship the Antichrist, they're forced to drink the wine of the wrath of God. And this this cup of God's wrath is like undiluted wine. It's mixed with spices to even make it stronger. You know, the idea that God holds a cup of wrath, which He makes those under-judgment drink, it's expressed more than 13 times in the Scriptures. I, I chose a couple. Uh, the first one, Psalm seventy-five, eight. it says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red, and in it fully mixed, and He pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. In Jeremiah 25.15, it reads, For thus says the Lord, of, the Lord God of Israel to me, He says, take this wine... Cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. You know, if you think about it, this is the main idea behind the cup that Jesus wanted to avoid if it were possible. Okay? This is the one that he wanted to pass on. We read in Matthew 26, 39, it says, He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus willingly took this cup of the Father's wrath that we deserved. Here we read that the enemies of Jesus have no choice. The, f- the cup is forced upon them. Okay? Chew on that. Jesus took that cup willingly. Thank you, Jesus, for your obedience. Amen? Amen. Now, the wine in the cup is associated with wrath. Um, The ancient Greek word here is thimos, and it it describes a passionate anger. And the cup itself is associated with indignation. And the ancient Greek here is org, which is anger from a subtle disposition. It's kind of like being disappointed. Okay. Um, The ancient Greek word org uh, for God's anger in terms of just being bummed is only used eleven times and ten of it uh, is um, is here in revelation i 'm sorry let me let me rephrase that so we 're looking at two two types of anger we 're looking at thymos and that 's the passionate anger we 're looking at org, which is the not so passionate anger and so in the um, in the uh, In in God's anger towards sinners in the New Testament, he he doesn't flash against them. It's, It's more of an org anger, right? But here in the book of Revelation, it so clearly describes God's ultimate judgment. The term for this passionate anger is thimos. Here, God is thimos anger. He's angry that thimos angry. In verse 14 he says, He, meaning those who worship the beast or take the mark, shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark and his name, mark of his name. So this passage teaches several important truths about hell and eternal destiny for the damned. Uh, those that suggest hell is not a literal place or hell won't last forever, just hasn't spent much time in the scriptures. Jesus taught more on hell than on the subject of heaven. Uh, in the scriptures, the term uh, Gehenna is the Greek word for hell. It's, it's mentioned 12 times, and for 11 of them, Jesus is doing the talking. Um, for the 19 references to hell fire, 12 of them, Jesus was doing the talking. So Jesus talks about hell. We learn that their torment is not a temporary one. It's described here as continuing forever. Literally in the Greek it says, into the ages of ages. And that literally is the strongest expression of eternity in which the Greek language is capable. Into the ages of ages. This is why the angel cries out with a loud voice warning people to reject the mark of the beast. Uh, there's a lot of talk about how cute and cuddly angels are, Right? Little guys sitting on the clouds playing their harps. But that's not the picture that you get here. When you read this passage, you read that they are creatures who plead passionately and they proclaim loudly because hell is real. It's not a game. In verse 12, we read that it says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So the stern warning addressed to the worshipers of the beast is also an encouragement who put their trust in Christ. Be patient is the word given to those Christians during the tribulation, to those who respond to the 144,000, to the message of the angels, and to the powerful witnesses, the two witnesses that we read about in, in Jerusalem. Be patient. Verse 13, he says, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. You know, we can only imagine what courage and comfort this passage will give the embattled and persecuted saints during the Great Tribulation. It's going to be a hard time. Clearly, God wants to encourage his people to be steadfast in the times of trial, focused on what blessed rest and rewards awaits for them in eternity. Because that's important. That's what's going to get them through. You know, you've heard the term beatitude. A beatitude is an offering, an offer of blessing from God. And, you know, we normally think of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Uh, 1 through 12, when we think of the the Beatitudes, right? You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And it, and it goes on for a total of eight Beatitudes. Guess what? There are Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Did you know that? There are Beatitudes in the book of Revelation, and this is the second one. Okay, quiz question. Where was the first? Ah, uh, there we go. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. Revelation one three. Blessed is he who reads those and hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Okay, bonus points. That was good. All right, all right. Okay, so how many beatitudes are in the book of Revelation? Seven. Thank you. You know that if the question comes, how many? It's always. Seven, all right. Yes, there are seven seven Beatitudes, and, and we'll uh, we'll check those uh, as we go through the rest of the book. Verse 14, it says, Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So the Holy Spirit here agrees with the blessing that the patient endurance of work of these saints, is, it's remembered in heaven. What we do here matters. Our work for the Lord goes with us into heaven. It gives importance and significance to all of the work that we do here on earth. Verse 14, he says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. You know, it is harvest time. It's time for Jesus to bring in the harvest. And, you know, many have difficulty identifying Jesus as the one harvesting here. It's just hard to imagine that our Jesus would go out with a sickle, right? But, you know, it's a hard time with Jesus responding to another angel but you know what? It's unlikely that anyone called the Son of Man wearing a golden crown is anyone else but Jesus. And now there's going to be a separation between those who became or become Christians during the tribulations and, and those who don't. Verse 15 says, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And so he who sat on the cloud thrust his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. So we see another angel coming out of the temple, and like he's bringing the message, you know, from Father God to go and begin the harvest. And so, the expression for the harvest of the earth is ripe. It's kind of interesting. It's the ancient Greek word for ripe here kind of has a negative sense. Um, It becomes it, it to become it means to become dry or withered. It's like you can picture the grapes become dry or withered. It's like the idea of that is something is overripe. Okay? We love guacamole. We buy a bag of avocados, we throw them on our salad, and as they soften up, we cut them up and make guacamole. Right? What happens if you leave your avocado one day too long? Right? What a bummer. But God here... Has waited until the very last second. It's like God will judge the earth only when it's overripe for judgment. He doesn't rush into judgment. It's like God waited until the very last second. Verse 17, then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. So here's, you know, other angels with sharp sickles are assisting in the harvest of the earth. Verse 18, And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sickle, the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And so this angel who had the power of, over the fire, could very well be acting in response to the prayers of the saints. Remember, we talked about an angel who would take uh, embers and put them on uh, uh, on the fire, and and the the cloud would rise to God. So it was like the prayers of the saints. This could be the same angel. This was this was um, you know the prayers of the saints were asking how long, O oh Lord, until uh, the, there was revenge. And so here we are. Here in verse eighteen, we read of the vine of the earth. Now, you've, you've heard of the use of the vine in a figuratively way. It's, it's frequently found in the Bible in relation to Israel. And uh, it's also used of, of the church in John 15:1 through 6. And, and just as Israel and the church were to bear good fruit of righteousness to the Lord, here we have the vine of the earth doing the exact opposite. It was producing the fruit of wickedness and corruption. You know, just like the junipers in the parking lot, they got to go. Right? And so Jesus and his angels are doing the harvesting and 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 so this is what's going on. You know, you you've seen you you've sung the lyrics. Now listen, it says Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vineyard where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Name that tune. Battle hymn of the Republic, right? the vivid picture of judgment that we read here in Revelation 14 is forever going to remind me of what's happening here. Okay? Verse 19. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the, wine of the, uh, the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. You know, here we read that the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vines and throws them to the winepress of the wrath of God. And this is, you know, obviously a picture of the ultimate judgment of the wickedness of man. And and this is all taking place in the city, which scripturally means uh, it's, it's referring to Jerusalem. So this is a picture of just tremendous carnage. And we're going we're to read about this in the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation 16 and Revelation 19. But, you know, it's really hard to imagine a river of blood running the length of the promised land. Uh, 1,600 furlongs. This would be approximately 200 miles. And it says that uh, it would be as high as a horse's bridle. And so you could think of, you know, like a 200-mile-long river six foot deep of blood. Now, I don't know. I mean, that would just be incomprehensible river of blood. But we just know that it's going to be ugly, right? It's, it's going to be tragic. This vivid, powerful description shows just how complete the judgment of God is going to be. Revelation 14 is the perfect answer to Revelation 13. You know, at the end of Revelation 13, it almost seemed like Satan and the Antichrist, you know, they, they might win. They, they even had a chance but Revelation 14 shows who is really triumphant, shows who is really powerful, and shows who's really in control. Uh, our God, His Messiah, and His people, they win. Right? God wins in the end. Okay? We've read the end of the book. And uh, not Satan, not His Messiah, small m, which would be the Antichrist or His followers. God wins. So really, taken as a whole, chapter 14 of Revelation emphasizes two things, 144,000 of Israel as they serve at the beginning of the Great Tribulation. And and we know now that they're going to be preserved triumphantly through it. And God's going to protect them, all of them, every single one of them. Secondly, the rest of the chapter is devoted to these various pronouncements of divine judgment upon the world, and the wicked part anyway. and, And it reassures the saints of that day that, although they may be martyred, they may lose their life during the process, God's ultimate justice will triumph and that wicked's gonna, wickedness will be judged and the saints will be rewarded. And you know, you think about it, the implications of this message for, of this evening are, are pretty obvious that today is the day of grace and that um, what is true of the tribulation is also true of today, namely that God's going to ultimately judge all men and that Today, the invitation is still open to accept the gift of Jesus Christ. And, and tonight, if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, please consider accepting the love that, that he has for us, the gift that he has for us, and his desire that none should perish, and that his desire that none should en- have to endure the judgment of the Great tribula- Tribulation. And uh, we would love to chat with you and make the introductions to the Savior if you so desire. So, after service... We'd love to chat. Tonight, my challenge to you is to be like the angel with the everlasting gospel that we read about in verse six that says, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Share the good news with all that you can share the good news, share the gospel, share the love of Jesus for the hour of judgment is near. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for your word. And uh, we thank you for your protection. And we know that we can rely on you. We know that you have our back, you have our front, you have all of us. We're in your hands and there's nothing that we can do to get out. So we just praise you. We thank you for your protection. We thank you for your love. We thank you most of all for the gift of your son Jesus that through him, We can, we can stand before you. We can come jump in your lap and love on you and worship you and, and you do the same. So Father, thanks so much for this evening. Thanks for the time that we get to spend together. (coughs) We love you. We praise you in Jesus name. Amen.